Sessions. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. Welcome to another edition of the SOS podcast. I'm Paul White. Hello from me. Sound on Sound's editor-in-chief. And with me is Hugh Robjohns, technical editor. Hello. And Chris Mays-Wright, the news editor. Hello. We've got a lot to talk about this month. Shortly, we'll be discussing the V-Piano, which is Roland's latest V-product, and hearing from Chris about what he's been up to in China. Also, we take a trip to SAE's brand new London school and speak to the company's founder, Tom Meisner. First, let's get a roundup of all the news. Zoom have updated their H4 portable audio recorder, a favourite of many in the field. The new version, the H4N, still features the onboard XY mics and the full-size XLR inputs as its predecessor, but you can now record all four channels simultaneously. Visit zoom.co.jp for further details. Speaker manufacturers JBL have added a new range to their LSR family of active studio monitors. The 2300s are the most affordable LSR speakers, with 5 and 8 inch near field models and a 10 inch subwoofer. They're built to the same standards as the more expensive LSR monitors, but they don't feature the built in room correction technology or baffle mounted meters as the larger models. Software developers Spectrasonics have updated Stylus RMX, their groove manipulation software. Version 1.7 features a new module called Time Designer, which lets the user alter the time signature of RMX formatted audio loops. For more information, head to www.spectrosonics.net. The London International Music Show, or LIMS to you and me, is almost here. Sound on Sound are, again, the media sponsors of the sound recording technology part of the show, which will be taking place between the 11th and the 14th of June. Tickets start at £14 and can be purchased from the show's website, londoninternationalmusicshow.com Keep your eyes on the SOS news pages and on the website for more information about what's going to be going on at the show. Also on the SOS website at the moment is the Sound on Sound Reader Survey, which we run every few years. It helps us to focus our content to make SOS even better. So, why not have your say? There's the chance to win a pair of fabulous PMC TB2 active monitors or one of 50 Rycote InVision shock mounts. Head to soundonsound.com forward slash survey to submit your entry. Chris mentioned Stylus RMX version 1.7 in the news, and well, incremental versions of plugins are not usually huge deals. I think this one probably is, because it uh, includes what is probably a unique feature in that it allows you to take the grooves in any genre and make them match the genre of any other groove that you selected within the library. They've also put a control in there that allows you to simplify grooves so that if something's a bit too busy, it actually takes slices out of the thing in a musically intelligent fashion to make it a little bit less fussy. It, it increases the usefulness of the thing uh, vastly, really. I think it's a really significant step. Sound advice. It's Q&A time again, or as we call it here on the SOS podcast, Sound Advice. The first question this month comes in from Sebastian Legrand, who asks... Can I feed a microphone into a guitar pedal? Paul, that's one I for you, I suppose the, uh, the indirect answer to that is yes, but not directly. If you've got a microphone preamplifier with a line output and you can adjust the line output so that it actually doesn't clip the pedal, you can, uh, you can use it. Um, sometimes you can get effects from pedals that you can't get from apparently expensive studio gear, so yeah, give it a shot. But what you can't do is plug a studio mic straight into the pedal. What about using a dynamic mic, one of those old high-impedance dynamic mics? You may get a signal through it, but the problem with pedals is that they expect to see the level from a typical guitar pickup, and they don't have an input gain control as a rule, unless they're a distortion device such as a fuzz box. 
So something with an output gain control on it or output level control is probably better. Right. So the point to remember is that a guitar pedal, the signal level is, is higher than a microphone but lower than full line level. Yes. So it's something in the middle there. Mm. Okay. That was easily done. It was, not it? Sound advice. Joseph Butler says, how much difference do speaker stands make? Well, you try positioning a speaker in mid-air and see how long it stays there without one. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're kind of gravity nullifiers they are they're quite important to hold a speaker in space um i think what what the guy means is what difference does it make compared to putting speakers on a desktop and the answer there is probably quite a lot if you've got the space to put them in and of course the um the right space relative to your desktop because the last thing you want to do is to have a glancing angle coming off your desktop back up to your ears and as he says if you're putting a speaker on a desktop it'll need some kind of isolation platform to stop it transferring vibrations into the woodwork and if it's too far back on the desk then you can get reflections which come back up and compromise the uh, the frequency response but also if you put them on stands behind a desk if you've got a, a potential mirror point on the desk that bounces sound back to your ears, you can also compromise your listening. But uh, in general, heavy stands are better than lightweight desks for speakers because they keep the things immobile, tighten up the bass a little bit. Yeah, the, the problem with putting a speaker on a desk is that all those vibrations get into the desk and the whole thing rattles, I think. Yeah. Um, so if you've got the space and you put speakers on a, on a decent, sturdy metal stand behind the desk, you've just got better clarity. The, the, the speaker's... I'm more firmly held in space and holding just generally sounds better mm. given the choice I'd definitely go for a decent stand yes and if it's a coin that you can fill up with sand or some other material to make it heavier then do so absolutely yeah. there was a question that came up on the forum recently that, that might be worth looking at which was uh, a chap who was involved in an open mic night in his local pub uh, which has proven to be very popular but uh, with the increasing number of musical acts and the people that were attending the noise was getting to be a problem and one of the neighbours was complaining about the noise and he was asking if there was a simple way of uh, trying to cut down on the noise that was getting out to annoy the neighbour. There were some windows and a door at the back of the stage, and he thought those were the, the weak areas, and he wanted to put foam in uh, to try and, and reduce the, um, the noise spill next door. What do you think? Well, of course, acoustic foam isn't a particularly good soundproofing medium. There's a, a big difference between acoustic treatment and soundproofing. I think he'd be better off trying to um, treat the doors and windows. Uh, that's the right thing to do. Make sure that the door has airtight seals on all four sides. A lot of people forget that the bottom is a side as well on a door. Um, arrange a double door if you can. I mean, mo most walls are at least nine inches thick, so have a, an outward opening door on the outside, inward opening door on the inside. That will give you a much better seal. For windows, I think either some kind of temporary shutter that closes off the whole opening or secondary double glazing would be uh, the best option. Foam's not going to do much at all. Yeah. I suggested that he build a, a tight-fitting panel to go in the window recess with rock wool. The problem with the door that, that it may be an issue or not, I don't know, but being a, a pub, the, the door at the back might be a fire exit, and so fitting extra doors to that might be a problem from the uh, fire safety point of view. Yeah, if it's a fire door, then probably have w the heaviest fire door that you can fit to make sure that it does have airtight seals all the way around. Yeah. Of course, the other problem is... Um or oh, not the problem. The other potential source of noise um, can be to do with where you put the speakers... Uh, if you've got sub-speakers, for example, you don't want those too close to the doors, otherwise the low-frequency sounds are going to find its way out. It tends to find its way out anyway. And uh, get the speakers high up and aim down at the audience so that you don't need to blast lots of unnecessary sound onto the walls that are not really listening to you anyway. Good point. Yeah. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. 
you've got any sound problems that you'd like us to solve on the SOS podcast, send an email to soundadvice, all as one word, at soundonsound.com or go onto the Sound on Sound forums and have a look around there. Last month we sent news editor Chris Mays Wright to China, but uh, he found his way back again and here he is. China, the land of dynasties, the Great Wall and the Behringer factory, which was my destination in February. I was invited by the German company, along with 80 other visitors, to see what they called Behringer City, a huge factory and accommodation complex where the 2,800 employees of Behringer's Chinese manufacturing partner, Eurotech Electronics, live and work. Sounds good. I'm following by the Melisates to ensure that the performance of the speaker is well respected according to our requirements. Founder Uli Behringer and company CEO Michael Deeb showed us around the factory personally, and they even took us through the R&D department, although we were asked not to film or record in there. Would you like to follow me, please? If you don't mind not taking pictures, I would really appreciate it. Thank you. So here is the, the configuration group, everything to do with documentation, engineering approval forms that's happening. I was intrigued by lots of things in R&D, and no doubt you'll be seeing much of it being released in the coming months. I asked Michael to tell me why the tour was organised and also about the future plans for Behringer. Behringer is about the people behind Behringer and that's the culture. It's not just about streamlining technology, integrating the supply chains and efficiency. All that is part of the business, that's the easy part. Now, the hard part is the culture that you saw when you walked around here and it's very different in part to anybody except if you can come and have a look at it yourself. So what are your plans for this year and, and the future? Okay, we'll continue. I mean, our commitment uh, has always been the same. We want to provide... Uh, cost-effective or, uh, let's call it, affordable products to the masses. To this we will not ignore, we'll continue to support. But there is a major shift in the culture of the company and what you'll see from us. Uh, we have built two brand new R&D centers with a very simple mandate. Don't tell me how to do it better, tell me what nobody else has done. So you'll start seeing cutting-edge technology coming from Behringer. So instead of, uh, of really trying to provide a better price uh, um, uh, value proposition, we will start bringing cutting-edge technology to the market. And will you be branching out into other sort of sectors in the, of the industry, apart from MI and Pro Audio? Um, yes, we are going to enter into the installed market. That's definitely, you'll see that in the third quarter this year. Uh, we are entering into the lifestyle market, and really because the demarcation lines have vanished between those two areas, so we're leveraging our competencies to enter into those markets. And what about the guitar brands? You will definitely see different, different sub-brands or different technology being launched in that manner. Bigar has been tremendously successful uh, uh, and we will, we will be launching other, others. After the tour, we were invited to the 7th anniversary celebration of Eurotech Electronics, where nearly 3,000 people were massed to enjoy traditional Chinese entertainment and some not-so-traditional. It was quite an event, and it clearly touched Uli, who spoke to me after giving a speech to his staff. How do you feel, Uli? I feel very blessed that I have the best employees of the world, and I'm very blessed that you guys came all the world, all the way, to come and see this show. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for having us. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. So that was Berenger. I've also been busy with Roland this month, and I went to the UK launch of their V Piano. I asked Sean Montgomery what it is, what does it do, and how does it do it? The VPNO is brand new technology, so it's not so much a product, it's actually a technology. The crucial thing about VPNO is it's not sampled. There are no samples whatsoever. It's technology that is uh, based on modelling technology and is the next 
instrument in the V series legacy. We've had V, v drums, uh, V guitar, V studio, V accordion, V synth, V bass, and now V piano. So it's it's modelling technology. It's modelling from scratch. There are no samples at all. Right. So what does this mean in practice then? Well, firstly, we have um, individual control of all of the component parts that make up a piano sound. So that's the strings, uh, the, the, the case, the soundboard, uh, and we can independently control those. And crucially, and this is the crucial bit, we can control the interaction of those parts and how they work with each other. So if, for example, then, you changed, say, uh, some of the resonance, that on an acoustic piano has ramifications for all the other component parts, and that's what we're modelling as opposed to a digital piano, where, yes, you can increase a particular parameter, but that's all you're doing. It's not affecting all of the other parameters. That's the crucial difference. And in terms of, from a, from a piano player, uh, what it means you can do is not only model pianos from the past, or pianos uh, that are around today, it also means you can create sounds of the future. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. Paul, I think you've been down to Swansea, to Roland's HQ down there, to see this thing. What did you think of it? I know you're not a pianist, but what did you think of the sound? I was uh, very pleasantly surprised. I mean, it sounded very much like a good acoustic piano. There were no seams or transitions between samples or velocities. No audible loop points. The notes just decayed forever, you know, until they were gone. And, of course, you can you can morph all the parameters with modelling. You don't have to switch between one set of samples and another. So the thing's very, very flexible. And it's quite expensive at the moment. I think it's around the £5,000 mark. But, of course, there'll be uh, lower-cost spin-offs at some point in the future. So it's a technology that Roland about to, as they say in the trade, leverage off of the back of. Sure, and this is obviously the, the flagship product, so it's, it's going to be an expensive model, I guess. What's the advantage of modelling compared to sampling, then? I think um, the points I made before, that with sampling, it's a snapshot of something that happens one time and you can perhaps change the duration of it and you can EQ it, but essentially it's that one sound. With uh, modelling, you can change the parameters seamlessly. You don't have to switch between sample sets when you're playing loud and quiet. Uh, Not only that, there are things that you can model more accurately, um, which you can't actually do with samples, which are the things like the sympathetic resonances between the strings in the piano. And, uh, and the way that the, the crossover strings couple in a grand piano, which you can adjust in this thing. You can actually hear that metallic overtone creeping in as you turn up the control that deals with that. So you can alter just about everything, the length of the case, the hardness of the hammer, the number of strings per note, the length of the strings, whether they're made of copper, brass, depleted uranium, you know, cryogenically cooled chocolate, whatever. Mm, fascinating. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. Another company on Chris's hit list this month, we've sent him far and wide as you can tell, is the School of Audio Engineering, or SAE as we know it, and they've just opened a new facility in London. They've relocated from their old premises to a, a much bigger, much more impressive new place. And that follows the unveiling of a massive new Oxford HQ, which they did last year. So Chris went along to the opening party in London and had a chat to Tom Meisner, the SAE founder. The London facility is the newest one in Europe now, until I build the next one, which is Istanbul. Um, this contain, This new one is purpose design building i bought a completely shell building concrete floors and nothing else designed the whole place and what we have here is 13 studios four additional video editing rooms and we also have a whole bunch of outside studios like headphone studios what i call headphone studios what's in here is 
every most equipment in all varieties. For example, you have from SSL, you've got the, the G Plus and the little AWS. From Neve, you have the big DFC console and the Genesis. From Yamaha, you have the O2R and the little O1V. Tascam, you've got the big console. There's also, to give students a perspective, there's a TL audio console. From, uh, from Digi, you have the Icon and the Control 24. So the idea is for the student to be exposed to as many consoles because as possible within the one facility. So something for, every, uh, something for everyone, really? Correct, something for everyone. And the whole, it's been acoustically designed to be totally professional studio. It's not, it's not sort of, as you can see, not put together quickly. Huh? And it's, it's a major investment, and it's a long-term investment rather than sort of, you know, build a quick one-room studio. Huh? And it's only for students, obviously. So you have the, um, the audio side of things. What else have you got going on under this roof? You have, well, you have complete video editing studios with uh, HD facilities for video. You have all camera setups, various professional cameras. And you then have a green screen shooting room downstairs. And you have complete camera kits. So the students can do a location shoot, come here, edit it, and then put the sound onto it. Excellent. Thank you very much, Tom. Okay, thank you. Yeah, it was very interesting going to the uh, the newest facility from what is the largest audio school in the world. They've got an incredible amount of very high-spec equipment, and we're in a strange situation now that the education establishments have all the nice gear, and there are fewer and fewer studios, and they can't boast such impressive kit lists. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. It is impressive. I mean, SAE are slightly unusual, I think, in that they do tend to have a lot of the big desks and the, and the real high-end equipment. Not all colleges are, are as um, affluent and can afford quite such nice gear. But yeah, you're right, it is an issue that, that some of the, uh, the training establishments these days do seem to have better equipment than a lot of the working studios, which is a, a bit of a turnaround, really, isn't it? A lot of people wonder whether we should be educating quite so many people in music technology with so few jobs around, but actually there are quite a lot of transferable skills in there. And according to the guys at SAE, there are more and more people going there to learn how to produce their own music and to set up their own businesses rather than to work in other people's studios. So it is still quite a diverse and energetic marketplace, I think. It's true. And the thing that's not entirely obvious, certainly I I wasn't that aware of it, is that the SAE doesn't just do studio console type courses, you know, studio production courses. They're expanding into other areas as well. They do a lot of uh, film and TV training as well now, for example. I guess the bottom line is that uh, whatever you think of education, if you're inherently good at recording and then get the technical skills and the qualifications to go with it, you'll be a better place to get a job than if you don't have the qualifications. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. Well, that's your lot. We've come to the end of the podcast for this month. Don't forget to check out the April issue of Sound on Sound, which will feature the SOS Guide to Modular Synths and reviews of the Wade Maserati bundle, the new SE4400A microphone, and the Universal Audio Twinfinity. See you next time.